Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello and welcome to episode 3-262 of the Run Run Live podcast. First, let me apologize for anyone I talked into hurting themselves with my 1600 workouts. Seriously, folks, you have to ease into speed work. It takes a good three or four weeks before your body figures out the pace and form and gets comfortable with the effort. This is your amiable if not affable host, Chris, and today we've got a worthy show for you. I talk with Dave Griffin about his book, The Last PR, and we delve into some of the things we've learned from running. Good chat. In section one, I'll talk about avoiding hubris and the difference between good and great. In section two, I'll take a different look at the 1600 meter workouts and my current training program to see if we can tease some of the reasons out behind why it's so successful for me and how to extend that method. Yeah, I'm infatuated with it right now. You know, I'm back to running. You know how it is. It's addictive. I was down in Phoenix last week at a conference and it was a good rest week after racing the Vermont Shires Marathon on Sunday. With the three-hour time change jet lag, I would have been hard-pressed to run any quality workouts anyhow, so I felt very good after the marathon. No pain, just typical soreness, and that's a great sign. Probably also a sign that I could have pushed harder, but yeah, no. I did my core workout on Monday, and I replaced Tuesday's speed workout with an easy run, sort of jog, walk around the golf course thing, but then eased back into it with a set of 1600s, a a small set of 1600s on the treadmill Thursday with no ill effects. I'm in that point right now where I'm at a high risk for injury because I'm doing a fair amount of quality work and volume, plus I feel really good, and feeling really good is always an early indicator for injury because you just make stupid decisions. You know how it is. I got some of my garden planted this weekend. I'm sure you're fascinated with this. And I I turned it and and sowed it with winter rye early last fall. And that, combined with a late start, gave me a nice tall crop of rye that I had to deal with this past weekend. So instead of turning it in, just rototilling or spading it in, I weeded the rye out, and I'm using it as straw mulch around my veggie plants. Waste not, want not. I suppose I could have waited a little longer and made bread or whiskey from it, but that did not seem prudent. The rock star of my garden this year is my hops plants. I've been dragging this hop plant around with me for years. I've transplanted it to different houses and different locations. And I originally, I think I originally bought this hop plant out of a catalog and had delivered as a small root to me through the mail back in the 90s when I used to make my own beer. And I moved it from the shade uh, where I had it last year into my vegetable garden. And this year, it's growing like an alien mutant 
like something you'd see in a science fiction movie. I had to build a trestle for it and rig up some lines to train it on, and it's already like 10 or 12 feet tall. When they flower, it's really it's really neat. They have these big green uh, stinky pods on them that are really neat. Hallertau hops. And I got my old motorcycle running and registered. Remember, I bought this motorcycle in 1985, the same year I got married. It's a champ, coming up on 30 years. It's an antique. My training is going great. I had an excellent outing in Vermont. I just couldn't close it at the end. You may have gotten the race report last weekend. All I need is that last 10K, and I have a five- or six-week cycle now before the Bay of Fundy Marathon to get some longer runs in. Those those plus the, the 26 miles of the last cycle should put me on track to qualify if we get a decent day. And it turns out that the Bay of Fundy is in the middle of nowhere, and it's probably an eight-hour drive for me. I was starting to worry about finding a hotel. People were freaking out. They are going, oh, you haven't got a hotel. You'll never find a hotel. But instead of freaking out, I found a campground right on the course for 28 bucks Canadian, piece of cake. From my mountain bike adventures, I keep a tent in my car at all times. <laughs> and I don't need no stinking bed and breakfast. So overall, I feel like the speed work is getting easier. And my legs are catching up with my fitness, with my lungs. And I need to do some long, slow distance and stay healthy, and I'll be good to go. And I'm also staying at less than 185 pounds, even though I'm not dieting per se, and that's another good sign. So what is my current training schedule, you may ask? Well, let's start with my Saturday. Saturday is my long run. And I'm going to push this up past 20 miles on this next cycle and then I pull it back to 13 or 14 miles on the rest weeks. I have to slow my long runs down a little bit because it's more about time on your legs and buffering, not speed. Sunday, after my long run, I do an easy six to eight miles with Buddy and my running club, and I try to keep this conversational, stay away from the young studs who push too hard. This is a fun run on tired legs, cleans out the crap, and I get some miles in, get the dog a run. Then Monday, I do a core workout of arms, shoulders, back, and abs. I do a bunch of push-ups and crunches. Then Tuesday, I do my speed work, which, as you are very familiar with now, is 1600s at the track or a similar alternative effort. And Wednesday, I do a bike ride. I try, if I'm home, I'll do an hour and 20-ish on Fujisan out in the bike trail. Or if I'm in a hotel, I'll do 40 to 60 minutes on a stationary bike, and I'll try to throw in a set or two of push-ups and crunches. And Thursday, I do Tempo 1600. This is my meat and potatoes. This is an important workout. So I try to get done either at the track or on the treadmill, and I make sure I get this done. Friday, I do bike and some core if I can, but it's really just an easy day to get ready for the long run, which is on Saturday. And that's it. That's my week. It's simple. It's predictable. But it's very effective, and it's very time efficient for my schedule and my life. Now, hopefully, that will give you some idea of the balance that I've struck and the work that I'm doing. It comes down to, I don't know, 8 to 10 hours a week which I don't think is all that taxing. Uh, not as taxing as listening to me talk about it. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Okay, hubris and good versus great and realizing you're not the smartest person in the room, so you should l remember to listen. 
I had the great pleasure of watching a keynote address last week by Jim Collins, who was well known for his books, including the seminal Good to Great, which is a staple of business reading. He comes from the genre of Peter Drucker and Tom Peters, and they mix a bit of wisdom and data into their inspirational message for business leaders. And I very much enjoyed watching him speak. He was flawless in his pacing and his tone and his hand gestures and using silence like a hammer. Just a wonderful speaker with a solid content, and he connected so well with the audience. You don't get to that point of mastery by chance. He's really worked on his craft. And he's a wonderful speaker with so many great nuggets and valuable messages about leadership. And I could tell by watching him that he's worked for years to master his craft. And the emotive spinning and attuning of phrases and the energetic hand movements, like he's grabbing thoughts from the air and mashing them into themes and thoughts, and the dramatic pauses to let the silence drip like honey slowly into the minds of the audience. The intense facial expressions, like exclamation points on his sentences. He was truly a master at his craft. And I could only think of the many long hours and year he's he's been working on this message and these presentations to achieve such a passionate zenith where message and content are exultant in delivery. And we were all enraptured and enthralled. We were eating it up we were leaning forward in our chairs, nodding our heads and grinning like children. And I was taking furious notes on my laptop, even though I'm sure the presentation is available. I wanted the visceral connection between his words and my conscious brain that only writing them down can can do for me. And my own carving of mental Stella, hoping that the granite of my mind might preserve some of this. And at the end of his speech... Instead of just asking the audience of a few hundred people for questions, Jim asked us to turn to our neighbors and form small groups. And we did this willingly as we were under his spell. And he asked us to, as a group, come up with a good question and send a representative to one of the microphone stands to ask that question. And being who I am (laughs) and being full of myself, I was the first to speak up in my little group. I thought if our little pod needed leadership, I would offer mine because how could these industry people be expected to come up with anything interesting? Whereas I, with my vast experience and utter hubris, could easily frame an excellent metaphysical interview question. So I spoke up. I said, in these sorts of situations, I usually will ask One of two things. First, I might ask an open-ended question like, so what have you learned from all this? Or I might filter it a bit with, what's the one most important thing? Or what are the three top things? And then I pause for them to acquiesce to my brilliance. And the next person, a, a British guy from a health sciences company, sitting in the row behind me, offered a specific content question, and the lady next to him, a food industry executive, also offered a good alternative. But it was the guy next to me, another Brit from a different life sciences company, who had the brilliant question. At one point in his speech, Jim came the closest to talking about himself, to making it personal. He spoke of how he now believes that the most productive or valuable time in a person's life is after 50 because Jim was now entering his in his 50s. 
because in our modern world, this is where you have developed the skills, you have the experience, and you are free of the constraints and worries of youth. Jim had said this almost wistfully as he had just finished the fourth and final book in the Good to Great series, and he would be moving on to some new pursuit, some new project. Colin, the Brit next to me, suggested that we turn this observation and question around on Jim and ask him if he really thought the life begins at 50, what was he going to do now, personally, to take advantage of this opportunity? And there were some other suggestions, but this one thoughtful question resonated, and we elected Colin to stand at the microphone and ask it. Now, to set the scene, it was your typical giant hotel ballroom with a few hundred, maybe even a thousand people in the audience, and Jim up on the stage. The rows of chairs were set in ranked squares, separated by aisles like any event, and they set up three microphones in the three aisles, and then when Jim called for the questions, the groups ejected their question missionaries and lines formed behind each microphone. Colin was the first in line behind the third microphone on the right side. Jim started left to right. So the first question came, and it was a topical question on how to select key team members for the important seats on your bus. And Jim, obviously ready for this, had heard it before, masterfully enumerated the five key attributes that key people on your team should have. And the second question was something similar, and Jim fielded it with similar aplomb. And then it was Colin's turn. And Colin asked Jim the question about being over 50 and what he, Jim, was going to do with this valuable part of his life now. And as I watched, Jim was forced to think on his feet. And he didn't know the answer to this question. And he was forced to work through the very personal process of what are you going to do with your life now? And he stumbled a bit, and he searched for the right words and thoughts, and he was broken out of his performer's shtick, and it was like he had sort of taken a torpedo from left field. But he did that thing that we all should do in this situation, which is to be human, and he admitted he didn't know what he was going to do, but he was working through it in his mind. Then he found his footing, and he talked with renewed energy about the possibilities and the potential things that aligned with his passion that might be in his future. And the lessons I took from this, first, my assumption that I was the smartest person in the room by default was ridiculous. We do ourselves and our communities and our stakeholders a great disservice when we forget about the potential and evident brilliance of the other people in the room, the people around us. Interestingly, this same hubris, when displayed as part of a company's culture in Jim's science, is one of the indicators that a company is about to fail. So yeah, pride cometh before the fall. And when I subsequently looked up this gentleman, Colin, the Brit who had asked the good question, and when I looked him up on LinkedIn, I found that he was an executive vice president of an entire region for this global company and a Harvard graduate to boot, and I'm pretty sure if he and I were the only two people in the room, I would not be the smartest person there. It's not that I wasn't willing to hear or to listen. It's just that I assumed no one would have anything important to say or that they would be afraid to say it. I have to keep coming back to my personal mantra of, it's not about me, and it's not about you. 
when you think only in terms of and context of your yourself and your frame, you are limiting the scope of opportunity for brilliance in your life. You have to listen. You have to live outside in, not inside out. But in order to do so, you have to become comfortable and competent with what is on the inside of you, and that is your inner game that we talk about a lot. And that is the inner game which, when you master it, will allow you to either act with destructive hubris or open up to the possibilities of those in the world around you without fear. So the lesson here is is to assume that you're the dumbest person in the room. <laughs> Ask questions, learn from and profit from the experience and brilliance of those around you. It doesn't diminish you in any way. It makes you fuller and stronger, whereas an assumptive hubris will always diminish you. Jim has so many powerful nuggets and stories, and, and he has the data to back them up. I could write 200 blog posts about the good to great ideas. One in particular that he uses often is that good is the enemy of great. And he uses this in the context of companies. When things are going well, when things are good, they're satisfied and they lose focus and they don't get to or even want to pursue their greatness. And this is a message that is scalable to us, to people. How many people do you know that are satisfied with good and won't try for great because they don't want to risk the good and many times the good is not even that good, and the good has its own risk, even though they see it as a safe path. I struggle with this myself. I'm a risk taker, but I have responsibilities to my community and my family. I can't rush off like Don Quixote tilting at windmills and risk the merits and fruits of a long career, can I? Or am I doing them all a disservice by not flying higher? Is it really just an excuse? Am I hiding in a box and trying to justify it? More than once over the last few years, I've had people from this audience, my audience, I've had them come up to me with the same questions. I invariably tell them to make the leap. It's another form of the innovator's dilemma, which is you have to destroy your current reality to create the next big thing with no guarantee of success. But according to Jim, there's a middle ground. Companies that do this well have a way of testing the risk and then leaping testing the water and then jumping in. You can take smaller changes or risks or adventures, a pilot program in that direction. And once you've determined that the opportunity is there, then you take the big leap. Seems like a tricky concept to me. There is always a blind leap of faith involved when you strive to be great. Maybe the fact that there is risk and that you are venturing into the unknown is what draws us. I'll leave you with this thorny question. Are you sacrificing your great for your good? I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. And now for today's featured interview. All right, Dave. Yes. I just read your book this week, and your book is After the Last PR, right? That's right. Yeah? Okay. So why don't you give us the uh, the 200 words or less on uh, who you are and, and what you're doing? Okay. Well, um, I have been a runner all my life. Um, started running in high school after being cut from the uh, the basketball team because I at the time I was about five foot tall. And growing up thinking I was an, I was an athlete and uh, um, eventually found running as a sport because um, it was something that didn't have size limitations, and I, I happened to be pretty good at it. 
and ran competitively all the way through my 20s and sort of didn't run quite so much when, when I became a dad. And when the kids got older, came back into running, started doing some coaching and eventually um, some writing about running. And through all that, reflected back about what running has done for me in my lifetime um, and realized that nearly all of the qualities that I've developed that have led to success in just about anything I've done um, can be attributed to the, to the disciplines I developed as a runner. Right. And it almost looked like you were, uh, you were writing articles for some, uh, some publication and it did, it ended up being a compendium. That's That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the book is a, is a, a collection of essays, um, all of which were, you know, have been um, columns um, for uh, the Carroll County Times. That's great. So let me tell you, I was uh, I was on the, the bike Tuesday morning, spinning out my legs, out in Phoenix, and uh, the, the stationary bike in the hotel. And I, I flipped open your book because I knew I was going to have to talk to you, and I thought I should probably try to make her, make get it done, right? <laughs> and uh and I got through the uh the foreword, you know, the introduction and I and I and I and my thought was this is the book that I wanted to write. <laughs> this this is this is wonderful and I love it because when I when I write I write stories about running and mm-hmm. then I hope people can derive the the lesson from it. Mm-hmm. Whereas what you as you said, here's the lesson and here's why you know, here's the life principles and the core value, and here's why it's framed by and supported by the topic of running. Yeah. And, I, and I thought it was wonderful. And I, and I really enjoyed your descriptive prose as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm getting really jaded on running books that, that talk about training plans and paces and, and technique yeah. and that sort of thing. I just can't read any more of those. So I, I really appreciate this book. Today. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I, um, you know, when I started writing the column, initially it, it was just about running. And I think at some point I realized that it would be more meaningful and it would have a broader uh, base of readership if if I started to write about what I was really passionate about. And, it, you know, as as much as I am proud of the accomplishments that I've had as a runner, even more you know, I'm appreciative of what it's done for me. <clears throat> and to me, the cool thing about running and the reason that there are thousands of people in a marathon when only a half dozen of them have an opportunity to win the race is is because it, it gives us something that we desperately need in our lives. You know, so all these things that I that I write about in the book are available to any anybody you know, that, that runs. Right. And, and some of the deeper topics, you know, you talk about life, you talk about death, you talk about mm-hmm. friendship, family, birth, all through the lens of running. Right. And that's, yeah. I think that's really appropriate for any of us runners out there. We know exactly what you're talking about. Right. Right. We run yeah. to celebrate, we run to grieve and we run to, to meditate and to sort through the things in our mind. So uh, you're, you're spot on for that. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to hear you say that. Do you think uh, non-runners will be able to take these lessons? Do you think we'll we'll be able to? They, they, they're still going to think we're kooks. 
Well, you know, I, you know, it's it's funny. You know, uh, the the column is it probably has more non-runners who are loyal to reading it than than runners. You know, so I I, de- I definitely think that everybody can associate with the real you know stories in the book, and uh, it doesn't matter whether they run or not. Now the the book is probably going to be picked up more by someone who does run, but I think you know likewise a non-runner could pick up the book and enjoy it. Right now, you know, title uh, really intrigued me, and that's really why I picked it up. Right, and I saw it on Facebook. Someone had had quoted one of your articles, and mm-hmm. uh, and I saw the title of the book, which is after the last PR. And I got to mm-hmm. tell you, that's how I'm feeling right now. <laughs> right. You get into a certain point in your life where you're not going to run any faster. Right. And you're probably not going to run any harder or any any um, any longer, but that doesn't mean that running still doesn't have gifts. Right. Right. So, so the question becomes, how do you how do you make that worthwhile and challenging but not destructive? Yeah, you know, and there's a part of me that still struggles with the comparison of my myself as a runner today versus what I could do in my prime as a runner. And, you know, I think a competitive person never loses that completely. But, you know, today, the the reasons why I run and the reasons why I want to run for the rest of my life have nothing to do with competition. You know, it, it's because of all of the the other benefits that, that you get um, every time you go out and, and run. It, you know, it doesn't matter what your day's been like, it doesn't matter how much energy you feel like. When you're finished to run, you're happy you did it. Yeah. yeah. You know, we're, we're partial to running, but you could say the same thing about any aerobic or endurance pursuit, you know, where if someone happens to be a, I don't know, a, uh, a paddle boarder, you know, they're, they're going to get that same, mm-hmm. uh, they're thinking by going out and doing a hard paddle board right. after after work, right? So right. The concept of having something that's a relief or outside your your day-to-day existence yeah. that's made in your life. So, you know, but the difference between you is, and, and this is something I want to talk to you about, is you were fast. You, mm-hmm. you were one of those regional uh, club guys that would win, you know, win or play in your local 5K, 10K, and back when we started, five milers, 10 milers, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, and uh, that, that gives you a little bit of a different view or opinion on, on the whole concept because, you know, when when you were running, it was for real, right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I had aspirations of, you know, qualifying for the Olympic trials. I never quite got to that level. So, you know, that was sort of what I was pursuing. The odd thing is, I mentioned, you know, I sort of fancied myself an athlete growing up and I'm, you know, very, you know, competitive by nature. I don't know whether or not I would have been drawn to running if I wasn't good at it, which is, which is a shame, you know, now that I look back, but what it, what the success as a runner has allowed me to do is draw the parallels between, you know, the, the virtues that led to my success as a runner and 
and uh, the same virtues that I've applied, you know, as a professional or as a father or as a husband, you know, what I've learned, I think, is that the, you know, the principles of success are universal. You know, it doesn't matter what you're doing. They're basically the same. And if you apply those principles consistently, then you, you can lead a successful life no matter what you do and a very fulfilling life, too. Yeah. You talked a lot about running as a career enabler, right? Yeah. Talk a little bit about running as a career enabler, because this is something that I, I find as well, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think the most important thing to me, and I observe this all the time in my own career as a you know executive in my organization, to me, the, the most important determinant about whether or not someone's going to thrive in an organization is whether or not they recognize that they independently are responsible for their own success. You see, that's a, that's a quality that you have to have as a runner. You, know, you, you, know, you can't delegate anything. You have to do it yourself. Just the formation of that understanding that you know, no one is able to do the things that, that you need to do personally for you. Just that personal accountability, which is lacking so many places, you find that in almost every runner. Yep, yeah, true. Now, you don't have to be a runner to have it, obviously, but you know, as a starting point, that's what running teaches you. It's, it's that you have to recognize that you're responsible for your own success. Yeah, and uh, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And from for people who are not in management or executives, um, one of the things we can share with you coming from that world is that if someone needs a lot of management, we mm-hmm. start about whether they're the right person in that position. Right. Right? Right. Yep, absolutely. You know, and then you know, then beyond that, the ability to step outside your comfort zone and you know make sure that you're developing as as an individual. You know, again, you know, there's such a correlation you know to what we have to do as a runner, but it's true as a professional or you know in any career is you have to test yourself. You have to be willing to take risks outside what you're currently comfortable doing in order to grow and, and to develop and to become more capable. And, and the rigor of training for, for a long race teaches, teaches a lot of things. You know, first, first thing it teaches you is the importance of a plan and mm-hmm. taking, you know, daily action that supports that plan. You know, so what I do today is, may not help me today, but it's going to help me 16 weeks from now. Right. Absolutely. All right. Having that yeah. sort of view of the world. And then uh, I, I think another one of your lessons was persistent. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the more that I have thought about my own book and as I have done occasional talks about the book, one of the things I've recognized that there's is that there's a progression of virtues that, that you develop. And I, kind of refer to the first group as the virtues of accomplishment. You know, sort of the starting point is is developing confidence and being disciplined. 
and you know determined you know you'll recognize those as as virtues which are the chapters in the book and then those virtues will get you accomplishment at some level but they won't necessarily allow you to sustain it <laughs> you know because to do that you really need a different set of virtues which is you know patience you know, the ability to be resilient to be personally accountable to be humble Unless you learn those virtues as well, um, you're never going to be able to continually better yourself. Right. And then there's some higher level meta values, you know, that uh, that you need when, when you get to the end of the day as well. Absolutely. Yeah. The vir- I, I call them the virtues of contentment, you know, things like tranquility, you know, just choosing to be joyful and grateful. Uh, and then, of course, the virtue of meaning. If you, if you want a purposeful life, to me, you have to have faith that, that, that what you're doing is somehow connected to something bigger than yourself. So what's your, what's your favorite lesson out of all this, looking back on it? <laughs> wow, it's difficult to point to one. But, I, you know, I, I, would, I would go back to the, you know, one of the very first things I mentioned, and that is, you know, personal accountability you know, is to, you know, is to recognize that, and you know, not only are you responsible for your own success in life, but you're also responsible for your own happiness. Uh, you cannot ask anything else or anyone else to make you a happy person. You've got to do that for yourself. All right. So you've pushed the articles and the books out here. Um, how has it, how has it been received? Has any of the feedback surprised you? Um, you know, not so far. You know, the book is self-published, so it's one of the reasons I just recently set up the Facebook page for the for the book is I don't have a whole lot of time between my career and and coaching and writing to to look for a partner, you know, or a publisher. So I'm you know I'm trying to do a little bit more to to self-promote the book. You know, it's done okay out on Amazon. You know, hoping to uh, to generate a little bit more interest in it. But did you get any of those uh, you know those emails or those uh, those uh, posts where somebody says something that surprises you? Do you change uh, somebody's life somehow? Um, nothing that's that's really surprising me because I, you know, I've I guess I've been around running so long that I've uh, you know I've seen you know the impact that these lessons have on people. But I, I can tell you that I I get feedback regularly that makes me feel good about what I'm sharing. It makes me feel like it's meaningful to other people. One of the um, benefits of of uh, putting a column out there every couple of weeks is that you know you do you are consistently getting feedback about you know your work and and what you're uh, what you're offering to people and and most of the times. It's feedback that makes me want to keep doing it. Yep, yep, and it's good. It's a good uh, virtuous cycle. When you get to that point and you start thinking about your community and, and what you can do to augment or, or help the community, um, you start doing things like what you've done. You've, you've got a running program now, and you're, you're trying to put some put the love of running into some other people, Yeah. I am doing that. Yeah, the, in fact, this summer um, will be the tenth annual Flying Feet Summer Running Program. 
I started the program 10 years ago when my daughter uh, was in high school running. I wanted there to be a summer program for local high school kids to train for cross country. And because my, my own schedule really didn't allow me to coach at a high school level, this was my way of being able to, uh, to coach and also do something good for the, you know, the local high school community. What happened after the first year or two is, is adults started to join the summer running program as well. You know, at the end of the summer, the kids would head off to their, you know, to their cross country teams and the, the adults didn't have a place to go. So that's the point when I started to have year round, uh, uh, programs and and now typically um, for this l- little program in Westminster, Maryland, I usually have fifty or sixty adult runners that I'm working with at at any point in time. Right, and, and you know I think that's that's important. I think there's a white space there because even though you know you're sort of in a uh, a minor hut set of running down where you are, there's a lot of running clubs there, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of big big races, a lot of events. Uh, even though we have that sort of infrastructure, your average Joe who just wants to get out and do something uh, is, is afraid to join those running clubs because they're all these scary runners, right? Right. So yeah. I think there's white space where you, you need that 12-minute miler, you know, one mm-hmm. to three mile group, and it's got to be safe. And but uh, hopefully, once you get them booked, they'll they'll uh, they'll take it from there. Yeah, well, and 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 those are the kinds of people that um, you know come into my running program. I mean, there's there's all kinds, and and sometimes they come in, you know, very talented. And um, fortunately, I, I have a program structure that supports the individual, regardless of sort of where they are. And you know, we we apply, you know, you know, sort of proven concepts in, in the training program. But one of the most satisfying things for me is to watch people who are new to running slowly begin to recognize their own capability. You know, last fall, um, one, of, uh, one of my first-time marathoners it was particularly satisfying because the first time she ran with me, she couldn't run a quarter mile you know, without stopping to walk. Right. Yeah. And so I, I guess my point would be, you don't have to be a, you know, a, a fast runner like yourself, you know, a high school competitor, college competitor like yourself, or a, you know, a, a 30 something marathon guy like me to help the community. There's a big white space for people who just need that capture 5k, that 12 minute mile. So if you're the person who just started three years ago and you found you love it, oh, well, get out there and, you know, help some other people in the same situation. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, I can tell you from personal experience, it's extremely fulfilling to do that. Yes, it is. Yeah. So we're all getting older here. You get a little arthritis. You got some problems with your knees. You know, I got my yeah. problems as well. You know, how, do, <laughs> how does running change for us now? You know, how do we, again, I come back to it. How do we keep it challenging enough so that it's fun? and satisfying, but, you know, it's not self-destruction. And it, and it's probably, a lot of it probably has to, in the concept you have in your book a lot, is running as meditation. You, know, right. you go out to the trail, go out to the lake, you go out someplace and you see the deer and you hear the birds, and it's 
just so fulfilling. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's, <clears throat> you know, I don't, I will never stop getting drawn to that. I guess, you know, fortunately as a, as a runner, that part of life is presented to you and you really learn to appreciate it. I'm convinced that if, you know, if, if, if the day ever comes when my running days are over, you know, I'll become an avid walker, you know, just to be able to continue to experience that. You know, I think as time goes on and you get older, you know, running becomes, you know, maybe in a way more personal, you know, because, you know, we have so much life experience at that point that what we need from running can be extremely unique depending on, you know, the path that we followed or the, you know, the situation that we happen to be living right now. Yeah. All right. Well, good stuff. You got any, um, uh, website links or any, any, any place you can find you? Yeah. Well, the book's on Amazon. You know, if you go out on Amazon and just, uh, you know, search for after the last PR, you'll find it. You know, if you search for after the last PR, on um, Facebook, you'll find the page. And then, you know, if you have any interest in checking out the, the Flying Feet Running program, the website is flyingfeetrunning.com. All right, my friend, that was, uh, that was a good talk. I'll let you get back to your Friday afternoon, your long weekend, and I will as well. Great. Well, All thank right. you so much. I've, I really enjoyed it. I appreciate you reaching out to me. Yeah, I appreciate your, uh, your time. Great. All right. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Hitch up your tights because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Expanding the 1600 meter method. Some tips. At this point, you may be thinking to yourself, he's talking about 1600s again. Haven't we had enough? But alas, my friends, I think there is still ground to be turned and gems to be found. Why am I so enraptured with my 1600 interval workouts? Well, first because for me they are effective in enabling me to reach my specific goals, and second because they're simple and they're flexible. I find that most training plans and methodologies tend to overcomplicate things, especially those plans that are in that running magazine we all know. They seem like they're trying to cram in every type of training there is. Hills, strides, fartlicks, this, that, the other thing, blah, blah, blah. Why so complicated? For me, it's simple. Speed, tempo, long. Even programs like the first program, which I'm a big fan of, and they're very similar to mine, those are overcomplicated in their speed work as well. They have ladders and 600s and 1200s and all kinds of complex mathematics and paces. There's no need for any of that. It's really quite simple. Speed, tempo, long. My goals are very specific. I want to run a qualifying marathon. My 1600 base plan is the straightest line to my goal. I don't have the time in my life to watch a video that explains a workout. I just want to do the workout. I want to do the work necessary to reach my goal without having to break out a pace calculator and a logbook every time I want to do it. Simple and effective. Speed, tempo, long. Now that I'm older, I also work in core and cross-training, but that's the filler. That's the enabler for the speed, tempo, lung. So how do I take this basic workout and extend it? How do I use the basic 
purpose of the 1600 to drive other workouts. I start on the track because in order to learn the appropriate effort and pace, you need to isolate it. The track allows you to isolate it. And after three or four weeks, you'll learn, you'll start to be comfortable with the pace and the effort level. And then you can take that, you can take that to other workouts off the track. So first, you have to understand the purpose of the workouts. The speed part of my speed tempo long, the speed 1600s that I'm currently running, are at a pace about a minute faster than my goal marathon pace. And these are for establishing pace efficiency at threshold and at high effort. And they force me to experience holding pace, form, and mechanics steadily at a fairly high intensity and effort level. Great. That's the purpose. And because of the intensity, they also work my leg strength, my discomfort tolerance, and my ability to recover from a hard effort. And for me, these efforts are essentially seven to eight minutes at a little bit faster than 5K pace, right? Very simple. So once I know the purpose of the workout and what it is doing, I can extend it. I can take that workout into the woods with the dog or out on the road. I can do those same learned seven to eight minute hard effort, clean pace intervals on the natural hills and terrain, and it becomes a great strength workout. This is a great trade. I prefer to do the tempo 1600s, which I run at about 30 seconds faster than my goal marathon pace in a controlled environment, because these are really about form and pace, not effort. And these need to be controlled so that you can burn in that pace. And I will do these on the track if I can, but I'll also do them on the treadmill. And here's how I do my 1600s on the treadmill when I'm traveling. So there's times on the road or due to weather or circumstance that I have to resort to the treadmill to get these tempo 1600 workouts done. The 1600-based interval workout is, in fact, quite well suited for the treadmill. On the treadmill, you can set the pace... And this, in some ways, simplifies the interval workout. I will still warm up with a 10-minute jog. This allows my muscles to get some blood flowing before I stress them out with a hard effort. And you can actually combine the two methods. I will sometimes do my warm-up and my cool-down outside and then just do the interval portion of the workout on the treadmill. So I'll try to stretch on those warm muscles after my 10-minute warm-up and before my interval set. Uh, the other good thing about the 10-minute warm-up is that it will get your digestive processes unstuck in the morning, and that will allow you to take care of that before the interval portion of the workout. I find that with travel, I'm usually up at 5 o'clock in the morning to get these workouts in, and mostly my body needs that first 10 minutes to catch up, to wake up. And they're all different makes and models of treadmills in the hotels that I stay in. Some of the treadmills have programmable interval workouts, but you really don't need those. My relationship with these treadmills might only be one day long, so I typically won't invest in programming workouts into them. You need to know some things, though. You need to know what your jog recovery pace is and what your interval pace is before you start the workout. And for me, I currently, I'm using three three paces. I'm using an 834 per mile pace as my recovery jog because that translates to a 7.0 mile per hour on the treadmill, and it's really easy to remember. I'm using a 7 minute and 13 second minutes per mile for my tempo miles, which is an 8.3 on the treadmill. 
And I also know that a good brisk walk is a 3.2 miles per hour on the treadmill. So I know this before I start. And I start the interval by walking for a minute at 3.2, which is a fast walk, just to ease into it and warm up. I walk for a minute. And then I push the increased speed arrow up to 7.0, which is the 8.30s, for another minute. And then I push the increased speed button to 8.3, and I hold that interval pace for 7 or 8 minutes, depending on how I'm feeling. It's not really that important to run exactly uh, 7 minutes and 13 seconds to get the whole mile in. It's Feel free to round up or round down on your interval time to make the math easier on the treadmill. The benefit is going to be good either way. The machine takes 10 or 15 seconds to speed up the interval pace, and it also takes 10 or 15 seconds to slow down to rest pace, so it's a wash, and I don't sweat it. And remember, I'm fudging the math by saying that a 1,600 meters and a mile are the same thing. They really aren't. A mile's 5 or 10 seconds longer than a 1,600, so it all comes out in the wash. During the interval, you just run the interval on the treadmill, you relax into the effort and focus on pace and form. And as we have already discussed, this Tempo 1600 isn't about effort, it's about burning in pace and form over time. And then when the treadmill clock hits that desired interval time, so for me, 7 or 8 minutes, I hit the slow down arrow button and drop the pace all the way down to walking pace or 3.2 miles an hour. On the track, I wouldn't do this. I'd jog, I'd jog a lap, but the treadmill's just too digital in its recovery mode, and there's really no profit in overstressing your recovery. I mean, you really want to recover, so I just drop it down to a walk. It takes the machine a few seconds to spin down to the walking pace, and then I hold that until another minute is up, and when a walking minute is up, I speed it up to my jog recovery pace for the next minute, and then I do another, you know, so it's a minute of walking, a minute of jogging, seven to eight minutes of interval. And then when I've completed the whole set, whether it's two, three, four, five, six, eight of these, I warm down for 10 minutes. So rounding up or rounding down your times uh, to make the math easier is perfectly okay. For me, a cadence of walk one minute, jog one minute, interval eight is nice because that's 10 minutes per set and I can never lose track of where I am in the workout. And the last piece of the puzzle is the incline on the treadmill. And I think this the depends on how you feel and the equipment you're using. I typically go at a 0.5 incline or a 1% incline. If if I'm really tired and jet lag, I might even go with a 0% incline. It really, I, I do it by feel. Um, all machines are calibrated differently and they may actually be maintained differently. Some machines are just going to be harder to run on, so don't stress over it. Make adjustments to elevation or pace or time so that you can get the the workouts done without hurting yourself and get the purpose of the workout completed. And if you can do this, then the treadmill interval workout is almost as good as being at the track. And in this way, you can take my basic simple program of 1600s, speed, tempo, long, and expand it to cover all circumstances. And you may say something like this, but Chris... My target race has some hills in it. Shouldn't I do hills? Well, not necessarily. What is a hill in a race? It's a hard effort followed by a recovery. An interval will give you that. It's If it's a really hilly course, you can take your speed intervals, your 1600s, out onto a hilly course, and then you can check both boxes. 
for the final part of my training, the long run, I try to do them at 30 seconds to a minute a mile slower than my goal pace. Uh, the point of these long runs is time on my feet and being able to maintain a relaxed form over the distance and the duration. I mean, it's up to you, but I don't know why you would neurotically complicate things when you can keep them simple and get the same results, but that's me. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. <laughs> All righty then, it looks like we have arrived unscathed at the end of episode 3-262 of the Run Run Live podcast. Thank you, my friends, for listening. If you haven't downloaded the most recent episode of Fidipidations, you should. Uh, Steve did a magnifico job of covering the Poco Loco in Boston, and he made it really special given some of the challenges that we've all faced this spring. Also, if you have a chance to check out and support Anne, you remember Anne from Anne's Running Commentary, who was a member of our Run Run Live 2.0 staff. Uh, she's doing a, a walk for an organization, and she's talking a lot about combating depression and teen suicides. Uh, there's been a lot of that going on in her community, and she's looking for support, and it's really important. So I put a link to her video about it in the show notes. And in my next episode, 3-263, I'll be interviewing Brad Warner, who wrote that book that I was talking about a few months back, Hardcore Zen Punk Rock Monster Movies and the Truth About Reality. It was an interesting conversation, a little bit different, but definitely all about transformation in the in the big picture sense, all about transformation, and that's what we're going for. I'm still loving my hokas. I raced the Vermont Shires Marathon in them, and I also bought a new pair of socks on a recommendation from someone in the community, Balega Enduro Low Cut Socks, and I paid 13 bucks for these guys and wore them in the marathon, and they're super comfy, and they come in the all-important Bigfoot size that actually fits my size 12s. I also got a letter from the Boston Athletic Association saying that they were going to give all of us who didn't finish a waiver bib for next year's Boston. Now, I'm not sure how I feel about that. The reason I was back there and didn't finish was because I wasn't fit enough to race. And that doesn't seem like something we should be rewarding when there's so many people out there willing to do the work to get fit, to get their bibs. If things work out the way they're headed, I won't need their charity. Actually, my 334 at Vermont, if I use that as a, as a time, would slot me somewhere in the front of the second wave. Uh, based on the tempo and speed work that I'm doing, I think I can run a 325 or, or lower if I can get that distance in. And I, I think if I can get through this next hard training cycle over the next couple of weeks without hurting myself, I will have no issues at the Bay of Funding next month. The plantar fasciitis has basically gone away. If we get a bad weather day or something else out of my control happens, I can still run a marathon at the end of the summer to qualify. 
And if I do qualify, then I'm feeling that there may be a 50K PR in my future, because I've never run a 50K before, in July or August. If I can find a nice trail 50K somewhere. I'd also love to get back and do the Wapak Trail Race, the 18-miler in September that my club runs. And some friends of mine also have, they want to get the gang back together down in Florida at a marathon with a, with a social media meetup in, I think it's in October or November. So am I just making up for lost time? Nah, I'm just enjoying myself. If there is anything I have learned, it's that you can't count on your plans. <laughs> you know, you, you need to live for today because you might not be able to run tomorrow. And these are the good old days, so make the most of them. And I'll see you out there. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm C-Y-K-T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. It's a useful thing. If you're moved by something I say or interested and would like to see if what I wrote is the same thing, you can find it there, and it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff, and let me know if I can help. Ciao.